Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Today, I'm excited to introduce Corrie Roberts. Hi, Corrie, lovely to have you here. Pleasure, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Let me, before we jump into our conversation, let me just step through briefly for our audience, a little bit of your bio so people understand um, who you are, and then I'll ask you to expand on that um, for us as well, Corrie. So Corrie is the Vice President Land for Talus Australia and New Zealand. Talus is a French multinational with over 80,000 employees globally and close to 4,000 in Australia. And the Land Division represents close to 50% of that. Prior to this, Corrie was in the position of Vice President HR for Talus. Uh, prior to that, she worked for Microsoft in Australia. She worked for UK owned Chloride Power Protection, Emerson Network Power, worked as a general manager for a successful retail business in the US and also ran her own IT consulting company. Corrie was also an advisory board member for the Institute of Sustainable Leadership. Corrie has lived and worked across Asia Pacific, Europe and the US. And uh, when we first met, Corrie referred to herself as a tricontinental mutt. So what, a, what an affectionate loving term for yourself there, Corrie. <laughs> Um, Corrie, before we um, go any further, just to help our audience understand, what does Vice President Land mean? What do you actually do? Right. So essentially, I look after half of the business in Australia, which is the land portfolio, which encompasses everything from our protected vehicles business. So we get to manufacture the fantastic uh, Bushmasters who have a strong legacy with the Australian Defence Force out of Bendigo as well as the new Hawkeye platform, um, also manufactured, developed and manufactured in Australia out of Bendigo as well, um, as well as the sustainment business um, support and services for that out of our Brisbane businesses. Um, we have also the munitions business, which forms part of that. We um, run the uh, government owned uh, facility in uh, Banoa, and we also make all the propellant and high explosives in our Mawela facility. So very strong regional employment in that region. Um, we also um, uh, run the longest um, uh, factory for um, sovereign uh, munitions uh, in small arms uh, capability out of Lithgow, so making the rifle for the Australian Defence Forces, and we also export out of there, um, as well as uh, some civil sales um, out of our Lithgow factory as well. Um, and then we also run the Explosive Ordnance, uh, which is the support and logistics and sustainment for the Australian Defence Force across the 19 sites in Australia as well. So inventory management, uh, training and, and support for that. So it's quite a, a, a distributed business across uh, 22 sites uh, in Australia for the land portfolio alone. Okay, fantastic. A very significant role uh, with lots of fun stuff by the sounds of it. 
Definitely uh, diverse and challenging, but uh, we're loving every minute. <laughs> Brilliant. Corrie, for our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you mind sharing a little bit more about perhaps your background, where your passion and your drive comes from? Sure. Well, you referenced being a tricontinental mutt, and I think that has a lot to do with it, um, actually, because I was actually born in France. Uh, and uh, my parents moved over to the US when I was about five, but I am French speaking, I still get asked that. Uh, and I speak with the, a southern French accent, which uh, often amuses people because it is uh, very sing-songy compared to the, the typical Parisian accent that's more prevalent uh, worldwide. We might get some of that later then. Oh, oh maybe, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, and I spent 20 years in the US, and as you've highlighted some of the career transitions there, but I also lived about 10 years in Charleston, South Carolina, so the Deep South, so my early formative years there as well as 10 years in Chicago, which is where more of my uh, you know, um, early career years uh, were formed, both in retail and the IT consultancy. Um, I had the pleasure of actually um, starting off uh, with you know, sort of good word of mouth in the IT consultancy. This is at a time when if you knew anything about uh, creating a website or setting up a small network, you did really well. Mm -hmm. And luckily, um, it, uh, it allowed me to form quite a, a range of network of uh, customers and, and, uh, and relationships that uh, saw that business uh, pretty much take me to Australia in terms of some of the project work that, um, that I was doing through that. Um, and, uh, and having then moved on to Australia, um, that allowed me to, uh, to move more into the corporate space, uh, which is where I started with some of the roles that you highlighted in both uh, Chloride and Microsoft. And I had a range of roles um, through those organizations as well. So started off uh, with HR and business services, uh, which oversaw even the marketing portfolio, quality assurance, some operations in that uh, with a strong HR slant to begin with. Um, I've always enjoyed working across the business. So you, you asked about sort of drive and passion. Um, I particularly enjoy getting involved in issues more broadly than, than my remit. Uh, which allows uh, me to, to interact with different people across teams, different challenges that might come up and things that aren't necessarily part of a normal, what I would call day-to-day um, -day remit or scope. And, uh, and, uh, and being able to play in that, interact, um, stimulate discussion and conversations um, is what is actually what drives me sort of from a passion and day-to-day and -day perspective and helps build some of that resilience in terms of uh, keeping the enthusiasm going through the numerous challenges that uh, you know, any business uh, faces um, on a cyclical or daily basis. So Kari, when I look at your um, career, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating all the moves you've done. And you know, I guess if you only looked at a slice of it, you'd think, um, you know, how has Kari made the transition from an HR role um, into, um, you know, a significant line role like you have today. But when you add up all of the experience you've had, it really has been incredibly diverse. And I'm just interested at what point did that, at what point did you go from having your own IT consultancy into the HR space and then what brought you out of that again? Hmm. Um. The, the, the initial transition from IT consultancy into HR was, um, was actually working on a project uh, where there was a lot of um, payroll and HR components that needed to be fed into the IT system. And I needed to understand some of the HR constructs, particularly in Australia, with just the award mechanisms in the legislation here, which is actually pretty unique. To Australia. Yeah. 
and um, being able to sort of get intimate with that area of, of knowledge, which, which was completely new to me at the time, um, and having to codify that back into an IT system uh, was what initially uh, got me interested in HR. And uh, I, I understood I had an accounting background uh, to begin with. And so there was a, a strong sort of translation in that from a financial perspective that I could correlate, particularly around the payroll elements. But I particularly enjoyed the people elements around it as well in terms of how that actually, how you operationalize some of the people elements within that. And, uh, and that got me interested and I actually pursued um, a, a graduate uh, certificate in HR initially to begin because I wanted to, to, to be more well-rounded and that set me up for the initial HR role. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I had had previous um, retail experience, uh, both in, in, um, in retail, but also I'd run a car business in the past, I had my online e-commerce site, I'd run the IT consultancy as well. Um, so I had a multitude of diverse sort of roles, even prior to, to me moving into the more corporate space. I was able to leverage that from wanting to um, have impact across business, not just from within my own portfolio. And um, I generally am, am, uh, enjoy a challenge. So um, if there's one around, um, I'll often um, be involved or, or participate wherever I can. Uh, and, uh, and I enjoy that engagement. And so you get pulled in um, when you're working with teams, if, if you can add value or constructive uh, thought to a process um, that's underway. Uh, and that's uh, really enabled me to um, uh, even if I don't have core fundamental knowledge in an area to ask questions that generate thinking or um, get us to a solution ultimately by, uh, by learning along the way, uh, but keeping an open mind rather than sort of resisting if, if you don't have that particular expertise in that area. Mm. And oftentimes uh, in my career where people have said, well, how do you know how to do that? Um, and uh, particularly in social circles, when, you know, you're telling people that you, you're working on a particular uh, project or problem, or you've been asked to join a particular team. And, and people often sort of reflect from their own perspective of, well, I don't know how to do that. But there's, how do you know how to do that? And I actually often don't. I, I, I truly do not. But it's wanting to be part of that and learning along the way. And I've never actually said throughout my entire career or life, even on the personal front, I don't know how to do that. I know I may not know how to do that but it's not how I approach the problem or uh, the situation in front of me. It's been, you know, finding out how to make it work, getting it started, you know, one step at a time, um, getting the right support, asking lots of questions, uh, getting involved, taking a chance, taking a risk, um, using a lot of, you know, different teams, uh, inputs and perspectives and, 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 and advice and guidance through the way, but inviting people into the problem as well, rather than, um, feeling like you're the one that's going to resolve it because ultimately, you know, it's very, very difficult or you will achieve a lot less uh, alone in that. On your own. Um, that is fascinating, Corrie, um, to hear you talk about that, to talk about the risk-taking and to talk about um, never having said to yourself, I don't know how to do that or I can't do that. So much of the research, when we talk about um, gender diversity and we talk about women into leadership positions, so much of the re research talks about the fact that a lot of women self-reject before they put themselves forward for a position or they wait for external validation for someone to you know, almost tap them on the shoulder and say, 
um, you know, you should do this as an example. I just wonder through your career, um, you know, you've taken a lot of risks, but have there been times where you felt less like, you know, felt less like taking a risk where you did actually sit back um, and sort of doubt yourself at all? Absolutely, um, particularly earlier on in my career, I would say. Um, and I would credit some of my early sort of what I would call braver moves um, because someone actually said, um, I actually think you should be looking for a role like this. Or, um, and actually one, one of my previous uh, uh, bosses actually said uh, at one time, well, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a head of HR role. I'm surprised to see that you know, you're not looking for that. Um, and and that struck me at the time because I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm actually really enjoying this and I'm getting asked to be involved in, in different things. And at that time, I had quite a, a hybrid role in itself. And I, I was you know, director of HR and I was involved in strategy and in multiple sort of facets of, of other key programs, both regional and, and, and global. And, and I thought I was progressing quite, uh, quite, uh, quite well and, 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 I, and I was satisfied and enjoying what I was doing. But it prompted my thinking and I thought, well, people were actually, you know, at least this one individual who obviously, you know, had my best interest at heart, could see me in a different way. And it was an interesting way that she had positioned it to me. And, um, and I've moved from that really to more recently in sort of, you know, different, uh, different roles, so probably a, a couple of roles back where you, you make um, more of an effort to, to, to question and, and having the benefit of some of the conversations that are in the broader um, I guess, uh, in a social context around diversity, and particularly this, this very facet that you identify, which is, is um, uh, very clearly more dominant in, in females to, to sort of hold back. Whereas we know if men um, feel that they have a chance at a job, even if they only have one or two of the 10 criteria, they'll go ahead and apply. Women uh, will wait till they have all 10 before they feel confident in applying. Um, knowing that has encouraged me actually to put myself forward and have more open conversations. And there was a particular um, moment where there was a role uh, that was open. And um, I knew that I didn't have necessarily the full support of everyone um, around for, the, for, for this, this particular role. And I actually sort of turned it a bit on its head and, uh, and started uh, engaging with people on the topic and, and saying, well, actually, if I reflect on my own experiences and, and, and you've um, called out sort of the very diverse portfolio that, that I have, um, different shapes and scales and industries and countries and all of that, but trying to pick some of that and actually trying to contextualize it into the new role for people through conversation so that you broaden your network, I think, of sponsors. Um, and so um, those that you know will end up being your allies in that too can make the link for themselves as to whether they can sort of give support behind that decision um, and uh, engender sort of um, you know we often talk that women need um, you know sponsorship and and uh, and male sponsorship is very important and critical for for a lot of women to progress in their careers and and their agendas um, and I think that's one of the ways that you know. Proactively, we need to do more of that for ourselves as well, rather than wait necessarily for um, others to, to champion. That's a great um, That's a really great story because what I hear in that is I hear you making a conscious decision to back your own capability in something and then actually socialising 
amongst stakeholders who've got some sort of input or decision-making, actually socialising with them and helping them make the leap around how your transferable skills could actually stretch to a role that perhaps they don't, you know, they hadn't seen you in before. Um, I think that's fabulous. And I agree with you about um, the sponsorship side of it. So I have two questions for you out of that. One is understanding some of the diversity um, complexities and mindset challenges that potentially a lot of females face. Has that changed you as a leader in any way is my first question and I'll come to the second in a minute. Yeah, sure. I think on that point in particular too, it'll, that socialising allows you to get feedback to whether you are on key or not, or what challenges you may face in pursuing that course of action. So it's not necessarily just sort of converting people to, to your area of thinking, but, but it is really to, to test your own thinking and, and to see what reaction you get so that you know what, what needs to be managed in that pace, either for further development or as part of a process. From my own perspective as a, as a female um, leader, uh, the diversity angle is, is a difficult one, particularly when it comes to, we want to hire diversity, but we also want it to fit. And I think cultural fit is often a great, um, I'll use the words loosely, an excuse or an exit card. So we want to hire diversity. And I think most uh, people these days in, in whatever corporate environment or business environment or hiring context that there is, are very aware of the conversation around diversity and the need to increase that in all its, its forms. But we also then um, have this um, unconscious or conscious bias around, uh, it still needs to fit within the culture. So as long, you know, particularly we're talking about sort of the female angle here. Um, yes, we want female for, for diversity's sake. Yes, we want diversity and a female from different experiences, different culture, different backgrounds, different industry as well. And that still needs to be challenged at times. Um, that can bring about its own sort of biases by way of, you know, we only want a female from this particular industry who's done this type of job, or what diversity you're actually trying to seek. Yes. And then we also want them to fit culturally. And often that comes with its own biases of she still has to act like us. And I think that that's one thing that I challenge consistently is if we're hiring diversity, be that female, be that a different background, be it whatever, you know, the many facets that we hire for, how do we allow them to then be um, included in the organization? How do we allow them to express that diversity? How do we actually capitalize on that and leverage that? Mm -hmm. I don't think that we've quite cracked that to the same level that we've built awareness around diversity is important. So then when, you know, let's stick to the female topic, a female might join an organization, you then get the feedback on, it's not the right uh, background perhaps, so I don't know how she'll understand this role or what we do here. Or it'll be, you know, that particular, um, she's too abrupt or she's too, uh, she lacks sympathy or she's too soft or too hard or you know, all of these uh, labels that we hear around women. So challenging that from a leadership perspective and help me understand that, what, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, what exactly um, are we trying to achieve and, and how might that, um, how might, you know, the approach that this particular female is taking help or hinder that? How can we support them to understand, you know, the specifics of our industry? Um, but sometimes it's really hard to declutter what I would call sort of the unconscious bias that creeps into some of that discussion 
versus actually capitalizing and leveraging on the diversity aspect. Mm. So many themes again to pick up. But I do want to just run with the the other question I had in mind first, and that was you brought up sponsorship and the need for people to be better sponsored in organisations. You know, have, did you have to be active about that? Did you have to look for sponsors or did sponsors find you? Does it happen organically? Um, I know some companies sort of engineer some of those processes. How do you see that side of things working best? You know, advice to people, I guess. I think it's both. Um, so I think um, generally you should try and cultivate sponsors and it's part of your relationship in your network uh, building. I had a great piece of advice early on in my career that said, you know, at the beginning of your career, your technical competence is what's going to get you um, progress and promotion and, 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 and movement ahead. But there'll be a point in your career where it's got nothing to do with that and it's all about sort of your stakeholder relationships and your ability to network. And that's definitely true. And I, and I can say that as probably you know, the most important piece of advice I got you know, early on in my career. The technical stuff gives you the credibility in through the door, but in terms of your ability to operate, your ability to influence, your ability to connect and stay resilient and stay in touch as a leader needs to be through that, 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 that community of, of uh, mentors, um, uh, you know, friends, relationships, stakeholders and sponsors that, that you have. Some of that is built um, you know, over time in terms of some of your previous connections, previous people you've worked with, previous um, sponsors that you continue to grow and leverage. And, and, and I try to maintain a, a quite a good network around that. But there's also in particular environments, you may not have um, initially sponsors um, that are sort of at the ready waiting. And it's how do you build some of those relationships and seek. And that can be trickier um, and it takes a much more sort of disciplined uh, focus. And I think, you know, a bit more sort of from a, from a feminine perspective, it's sometimes the imperative is initiating that on ourselves. Um, whereas earlier in your career, that tends to come more your way from, uh, you know, you, you're working and engaging and sort of led that. I think there's a stage where you actually need to actually go out and build some of that yourself and leverage the connections you already have to continue to build that. Um, I personally have found that a little bit trickier, particularly as you move into different industries, but without sort of a discipline and focus, it wouldn't happen um, uh, as easily at least. So people, I, I think it is a blend of both. People are, um, a lot of people are quite reticent to network. Um, mm. And I think, um, and it's, it's come out as a theme quite a lot in these conversations, that potentially that's because they're viewing networking as transactional, hmm. um, handing out business cards and standing awkwardly at functions trying to find someone to talk to, um, you know, as opposed to building deeper relationships and making sure they're mutually beneficial and um, you know, how did you overcome when you said you found that a bit of a challenge at a point? What, how did you move from the yeah, It's actually a really funny story. Um, many, uh, many years ago now, um, I actually forced myself to do speed dating to actually overcome this. Because <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. It can be very awkward standing around a networking or a cocktail or a drink event and trying to form a conversation with someone who initially you think you have got nothing in common with. And trust me, when you're doing speed dating, 
most of the time you have absolutely nothing in common with these people. And so I actually had to force myself and, and, and I, I did this three times intentionally. So I went out the first time and it happened by chance um, because one of my girlfriends at the time stood me up at the speed dating event and I was there completely by myself. And I went, this is the most awkward and most uncomfortable position I've ever been in. And I survived uh, the, the, the sort of 90 minutes uh, exercise and I walked out and I went, that was so painful. I never want to do it again. And I'm going to have to do it again because it shouldn't be that uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I actually forced myself to go back a second time. And with that um, sort of foresight, I actually had prepped a few questions that I could ask very generally to actually begin a conversation with people. So, you know, have you taken any recent trips or have you done this or that? And so sort of more social questions that I could ask very comfortably. And I got through the second one much more easily. And I forced myself to go back the third time to make sure that I was comfortable. And I noticed it immediately afterwards because there was a series of networking events uh, that particular month. And it was very transferable. <laughs> so you can actually, you know, um, sort of force yourself and take it to the extreme in terms of discomfort, because it was very uncomfortable for me first up, and That's move it to the more um, sort of, you know, making it normal and usual. That is one of the best tips uh, to come out of this series. I can see a serious uptake in speed dating. I'm not sure in COVID times how much no, speed dating is going no, on, but. Uh, um, I would love to um, dig a bit deeper into some of the stereotypes that females face um, in leadership roles. And um, the lovely Meredith Helicar, who you know I'm interviewing also for the series, who introduced us, when we spoke, she described those double binds as, mm. you know, females being seen um, as too soft, too hard, never just right. And, um, you know, it reminded me of something I heard Julia Gillard talk about. And that was that, you know, there's often an assumption that women are too soft for leadership, uh, too emotional or too hysterical. And I'd love to get your perspective on that. And I'd love to hear if you think you've ever come up against those assumptions. Absolutely. And, and look, I think... Um, most women that I, I speak to um, and, and sort of have shared some of my, you know, 360s over the years and feedback that you get, um, uh, you know, violent agreement around um, some of those topics. And it tends to be sort of almost on, on two sort of, um, I, I loosely I'll call them extremes, you know, whether someone is too emotional or um, the, the, the reverse of that being, you know, that they lack empathy, whether they're too hard. Um, and in how that comes across, which is quite um, sometimes really difficult to, to, to take because it is very confronting to get that when you know or it doesn't feel right um, and you feel often sort of misjudged uh, in, in a particular context or something that um, doesn't always feel fair either because you, you know that your male colleagues and peers do not get that feedback and, and yet um, we'll often hear even sometimes, oh, you know, he might be a bit of a bully or he might be, but that's sort of the the, the, the limit of what we'll get. Um, we don't often um, get that, that persistent feedback on, on the emotion side of things. I don't know that any of us have solved it. And I have had this conversation with, you know, women in Australia. I've had this conversation back into Europe. I've had it with my 
um, my uh, North American uh, friends and colleagues over the years. I've discussed it with psychologists, with counselors, with career coaches, with mentors, um, and it is quite, quite a pervasive theme. Um, I referenced it earlier as well in terms of even, um, you know, whether uh, move too quickly or um, uh, when, you know, the expectation is definitely there for change because it is more about that emotional journey that you take people on. The only way that I, I think I can answer that in terms of how I look at it for myself, um, and I'll admit it's still a piece of feedback I get even to this day. So it's, it's something that I think, you know, still grapple with from a management of perception uh, rather than, um, than, than, than sort of a deeper issue. But it's, it's trying to be a little bit more and reminding myself because it's not a natural trait to be more explicit about how I'm feeling or to actually validate the person's feelings um, and and how you think you might be coming across um, and, and giving the reasons why as to decision how we're progressing and sort of bring, um, there's a good phrase that I've used over the years, lowering the water surface. So being more vulnerable or being more authentic in terms of um, how you're positioning yourself or you're positioning a decision to bring more to the surface your feelings and your thinking behind it, which incorporate not the rationale necessarily from the analytical perspective, but take, being able to air that you have taken the feelings into account. And um, that, you know, that's not always applicable in every situation, <clears throat> nor are you always conscious in terms of how that comes across. But ultimately, we still have to play within um, what I call the rules of the game as it is now and, and, and understanding it. And ultimately too, if we were to think about, you know, how would I manage a customer or a different stakeholder, you take into account uh, more than the emotional side of things. So to me, this is just one more element to manage in that piece. And I think, you know, there's a duty on both sides. There's a duty in, in, in me making it more explicit as a leader and as a female leader so that I'm conscious of it in fairness to the person I'm interacting with. And hopefully with more conversation over time, it'll also become more um, aware uh, on the receiving party, which, which uh, in, in sometimes it can be uh, more male, particularly in my environment. So I don't know that I have an answer for it, but I do agree that it is a, a, you know, a, a very consistent and pervasive theme, uh, particularly as women move more into the senior ranks. It, I, I think it comes up much less often in, um, in you know, your early career when it's more about the technical competence. We will come back to some themes. We'll come back to some of those themes. I would like to ask though, there would be a lot of people in our audience who would be, um, who may have met you before uh, or who will be watching this and they'll be thinking, uh, you know, Corrie is exceptional. I could never do what she does. I could never take the risk she's done. I could never, never operate at the level that she operates at. I'm sure you've had that feedback before. How do you respond to that? Interesting, because I still think that myself about many other people and many of my peers. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I take it as a compliment and I'm flattered, but but honestly, it's not something that um, it's easy to say if I can do it, anyone can do it. And that's not what I'm saying. But I think there comes a point where you have to go after what you want um, and you have to take a risk. Um, I think it's saying I'll get this wrong. You know, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single footstep. Um, the, the first thing I would, I would, if I were giving advice to, you know, 
myself or, or a close friend, I would say actually, you know, find your allies, but back yourself. Um, you can't, you won't, it's a lot easier if you're not doing it alone. Um, but, um, you know, think about it, um, you know, visualize yourself in that space, um, build your network um, and, and get the support, um, get some feedback along the way, use your, um, the relationships that you've built over the years to, to help you gain that confidence in terms of testing it, you know, speed dating if it helps, <laughs> whatever the case might be. But um, uh, I, I, I think everyone um, always has um, someone that they look up to and believe that they can't do that. Mm. Um, one of the pieces of advice I used to, to give in, uh, when I was more in the HR role and coaching others um, through similar scenarios, and I can tell you even men have this concern uh, in terms of I'm not quite sure I could do that role because um, you know so-and-so does it so well or does this angle and I can never do that. Um, I, I used to coach this and say, don't focus on the person, focus on what the role would demand and how would you go about doing that? Because trying to imitate someone else is impossible. You can't, you're not that person. And you'll bring your own flavor to it, your own sort of strengths, your own insights, your own way of doing things, your own sort of priorities within that. Uh, focus on you know, what strengths you have to get you to be able to undertake that role and perform that role. What challenge, how would you approach the challenges? What would you do differently? Um, because oftentimes I can tell you organizations aren't looking for like for like, they actually want something different in a role each, each time that role comes up. Um, and so, you know, you could be that additional um, value add that you bring. So what is that and help define that, quantify it, build, um, you know, a team sort of allies around that and, and work towards it one step at a time. Corey, um, we're just not seeing the needle move, um, I think, as fast as we would hope it would on women in senior leadership positions across any sphere um, that we sort of operate within. Why do you think that is? Um, I actually think it's being risk averse. Um, and um, we often have, you know, this formula has worked um, it goes back a little bit to my earlier comment around, you know, has this person come from the same industry? And if those women didn't exist in that industry and the numbers that we have um, and we're not promoting them through, um, then guess what? You'll never have them. Mm. Uh, and so you're going to have to take some risks, bring women from different industries, different backgrounds, um, different perspectives, and ultimately uh, focusing on what it is you want to achieve and giving that person room to do that to some extent. Uh, with the support that uh, that fills in the weaknesses, um, as we all have them. Uh, but I think that it is definitely, for me, at least from the experience that I've seen often, it's it's very risky. You know, people's um, name or reputation are on the line when they appoint someone to a role. They want that person to be um, successful. Everyone wants that. Um, and so if, if there is an element of, you know, how, how do I make sure that I'm going to be successful in appointing them while I can have a tried and true and tested method and it's, you know, bring someone who's grown up from within this team or within this industry or within this business or whatever the context might be. And unfortunately, if we're not taking some risks and bringing people along, um, I don't think that the needle will change quickly at all uh, because we're not seeing women come through um, as quickly as we would like. Uh, and I've been one of those individuals that likes to hire on motivation, 
Mm -hmm. um, I assume a certain level of competence. Uh, but if someone is motivated to perform, uh, I often find that they will find their way. Um, and that does involve taking risks. It involves sometimes coaching in addition, uh, but we should be doing that for all roles in all, in all, in all individuals, not whether they're female or not. But um, that, that's my view. Can I ask you a question about that and how you assess motivation? Um, the passion that someone brings, um, the desire of what they want to achieve, um, the level of energy, how they can engage others around them, how they manage to influence, um, uh, how they measure their own success, how they keep up with their own development, um, what they do outside of work in terms of uh, staying connected on the topics and issues. Um, I've spoken to people who are very, very passionate about certain things and they spend a lot of time researching and have tried and tested and failed and some people have their own, you know, from a, a different projects and things, have their own sort of mini workshops on whatever topic it might be at home and um, they engage in the industry. They're often speakers at certain events on certain topics, so they attend those to learn and, and, and connect uh, with people. Um, it, it really depends on the role, but you look for those signs in terms of it's beyond the remit of the role or it's been de demonstrated in the past that this person has had a challenge, you know, it was quite a stretch. It's been out of their comfort zone and yet they've landed it and they're quite comfortable with that, but they've brought others along. It's not just the hero culture of, I'm here to firefight and save the day. Can I ask in your role today, um, if I circle back around there just briefly, you know, you're managing um, large machinery and um, munitions and all sorts of things like that. Is there any connection to you as a young, uh, you know, is there any connection at all to, to you when you were younger operating in this space? <laughs> Uh, when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor, so I would say no, uh, but <laughs> but my first jobs actually, um, uh, I, um, I uh, come from a background where I, I ended up uh, needing to work from a very young age, and so at, uh, at points in time in my career, I was doing two and three jobs, um, as you do in the US when you need to, uh, to, to make some progress. And one of those jobs was was running a, a car shop. Um, so was buying vehicles off auction lots um, and selling them, getting them um, done up. Um, often these were vehicles that were involved in accidents. So it was a, quite a lot of media work. So I was dressing up and going to junkyards and, and chopping things off cars and, and getting car parts and, uh, and, and moving cars around the country. This was back in the US. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, when am I ever going to use any of these skills? Because I do not see my myself, my life, my career sort of in, in cars. And I've got to say that, uh, you know, in the land portfolio in Talos, being able to talk about, you know, brake systems, be the pneumatic or hydraulics and uh, suspensions and uh, ABS sensors and everything else that's on vehicles uh, these days um, is, uh, is something that served me well in terms of understanding some of the componentry and the mechanics of a car. Uh, but also, um, you know, uh, where issues and, and, and being able to connect with the engineering teams and the workforce um, so that, um, you know, I can try and assist in terms of, um, you know, the positioning or, or how we move about a, a different piece of strategy. You are a fascinating person, uh, you know, car junkyards, <laughs> speed dating. <laughs> it's all going on in there. Corey, can I ask... Um, the final question that I am asking everyone in the series is mm -hmm. 
from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean today and does it need to change? Yeah, I actually think for me it been, means being more vulnerable. Um, and, and I think particularly if I reflect on my own career and, and even um, colleagues that I've interacted with over time and, and, and professional friends, you tend to um, feel a need to have it always all together at the beginning, you know, particularly for some of the constraints that we've spoken about in, in this interview with, um, you know, the competence angle and the emotions and, you know, not being seen to be too emotional or, you know, otherwise you might be cold and seen as lacking empathy and, you know, all of the, 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 these elements. I think it does force us to hide some of ourselves um, through, through our lives. And, one of the, 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 you know, as I'm maturing myself, um, you know, continuously growing as, as a leader um, each, each, each day, one of my own reflections has been that the more vulnerable I can be um, in terms of being authentic, in terms of how I feel or, or what experiences have shaped my own decision-making or what's coming to the surface for me when I'm faced with a certain issue, uh, and sharing that um, goes a, a lot longer, uh, um, a ways longer, I should say, than um, coming through from a more um, rational perspective in terms of here's a decision or here's a topic or here's a discussion to be had. And um, allowing people sort of the in into you as a person, uh, which is quite quite dangerous to some extent you know we don't we, we like to sometimes um, I think more or less in different contexts and different extents package ourselves for the day and um, as you peel off the layers and get to really know someone the more that you can have the core essence of the person I think the easier it is to engage to get to um, a decision or a discussion point that might be tricky quicker and, and being that authentic self in terms of why something is important often stems from our you know, life experiences to some extent. And, and the vulnerability is often at the core of that rather than anything else in terms of our daily fears. Um, and the, the, the only sort of advice I would have around that would be, you know, have your allies, again, back to the point, but be comfortable and conf confident with who you are because it's gotten you to where you are now. And the more you can engage with people authentically and being your true self will help you sort of be comfortable to keep growing. Otherwise, you will always feel like you're containing something and holding something back and needing to manage something. Which, mm -hmm. sure, you know, managing ourselves in terms of the social context is part of being social. Uh, but there's a certain element, I think, that we can sometimes let uh, people in a bit more and actually build some of those deeper relationships we have to to tackle some of the bigger issues that we know we need to address. Corrie, thank you so much and thank you for joining the conversation and thank you for being vulnerable today. Oh, thank you. Sharing, sharing a couple of the stories and feedback you've had along the way in your career. Um, it's wonderful um, that you've been so generous in your time to, to share aspects of your story. We might not have got any French out of you. Uh, <laughs> it could be a second interview. <laughs> yeah, we certainly covered a lot of areas. So um, thank you once again. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.